Alpha and Omega, the story we find ourselves in. Chapter 7a, The King's People Become a Kingdom. After years of spiritual decline, Israel's spiritual life was marked by a few lifeless religious practices, but they had little sense of the Lord's presence or guidance. There had been no definite word from the Lord for generations, largely because no one was listening for him anymore. But a childless mother named Hannah was praying. Samuel, the last judge and a prophet to Israel who also anointed both Saul and David as king, was born in answer to Hannah's faithful prayers and her pledge to give her child to the Lord. After he was born, while still very young, about three years old, she took Samuel to serve the Lord with an old priest, Eli, at Shiloh, where the tabernacle had been erected after Israel entered Canaan. Samuel grew up assisting Eli and his sons in their priestly work for the people of God. The call of Samuel, when he learned to recognize, obey, and share God's voice, happened one morning while he was still a young boy. In the dark just before dawn, Samuel heard someone call him by name. He thought it was Eli, but when he went to check on the old priest, Eli told him to go back and lay down again. It was just too early to get up. This happened two more times before Eli realized what was happening and told Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It was the Lord calling Samuel. The next time he heard his name called, Samuel responded as Eli had instructed. God communicated to him a harsh judgment against Eli and his family for his sons rebellion against God. When dawn came, Samuel went about his ordinary morning task, but at Eli's prompting, he obediently shared the difficult message the Lord had given. From that point, Samuel served as the prophet Israel so desperately needed. He brought the Lord's word to the people of God. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. For the coming decades, Israel was engaged in a series of battles with the tribes of Canaan, including the Philistines. But because of their spiritual life was so weak and compromised, they had begun to use God and the Ark of the Covenant just like all the pagan nations used their idols as a guarantee of success. They would take the Ark from the Holy of Holies and bring it to the battlefields, a kind of good luck charm. But God would not be used. So in one battle, when they were defeated by the Philistines, the Ark itself was captured and carried away. It was said that the glory has departed from Israel. In time, God made sure that the ark was returned to Israel, and the people lamented their sin. Samuel led them to repent and train them how to walk faithfully with God. He traveled through Israel, teaching, judging, and pointing them to God. But when Samuel grew old, the people asked him to appoint for them a king, like all the other nations, to judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, Israel already had a king. Yahweh was their king. That covenant relationship had never been revoked and was to define their life as a nation. Samuel even told them how an earthly king would rule, levying taxes, conscripting their sons for military service and their daughters as household servants, taking their possessions as political favors to cronies. Still, they insisted that they have a king. And though they were rejecting God's rule over them, and even though it was a wicked choice, God allowed it as part of his sovereign plan. Saul, the first king of Israel, 
led Israel to some military victories, but his leadership was more marked by his murderous jealousy over the rise of David and his reckless disobedience of God. At God's direction, Samuel anointed Saul to be king over Israel. Anointing with oil was a physical symbol of God's choice and favor. He was tall, handsome, and from a wealthy family. Saul just looked like a king. In his mercy, God gave Saul and his son Jonathan help with some early victories in battle against the Philistines. But in one particular battle, when things were not going well for Israel, Saul presumed to act as the priest of God and offered the sacrifices to seek God's favor. But since he was not a priest, one of the line of Aaron or of the tribe of Levi, it was an unlawful, even sinful sacrifice. When Samuel arrived, he told Saul that because of his disobedience, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. This kind of impulsive disobedience was Saul's lifelong pattern. He led the armies of Israel with courage, but every time there was an opportunity to submit to God's clear word, Saul resisted or tried to adjust it to his personal advantage. Since Saul had rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord rejected him from being king over Israel. Samuel mourned over the failure of King Saul and its impact on the people of Israel. But after a time, God prompted him to move on, to identify his next choice as king. David, the second king of Israel, led out of his passionate heart for God. He received the promise that an eternal king would come through his royal line, even, even through the painful consequences for his own sin advanced God's purposes. The anointing of David as king by the prophet Samuel happened after Saul's disobedience when God sent Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint a new king from the eight sons of Jesse, the son of Obed. Remember the book of Ruth? God rejected the seven older brothers, who were all impressive in their own way, because, as God said, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When David, the youngest son, was brought in from tending the sheep, the Lord prompted Samuel to anoint him as king. From that moment, the Spirit of God came on David to empower him for the task. At the same time, the Spirit's presence and power was removed from Saul, but for several more years he remained in the position of king of Israel. Some time later, maybe even a few years later, after David's anointing, an incident occurred that confirmed David's standing against God's man for this time in Israel. David defeated the giant Goliath through the name and power of the Lord. And here's how that happened. Israel was again at war with the Philistines. For 40 consecutive days, the giant Philistine Goliath had challenged any man of Israel to a one-on-one -on -one duel. This was a kind of warfare by which a champion of one army fought the champion for another in a winner-take-all duel. The losers would lay down their weapons and become prisoners of war, likely slaves, to the victors. All Israel's warriors were too terrified to engage Goliath. No wonder. He was nine feet tall. The shaft of his spear alone was the size of a small tree. So the people could not advance. Now let's stop here from, for some story perspective. It was clear that the people of God were moving into a new phase of their life with God, just like another key time. Forty days of the Philistine giants' challenge corresponds to the forty days the Israelite spies spent spying out the promised land. Remember why the ten spies didn't want to press into Canaan? They said there were giants in the land. These were the ancestors of Goliath. 
The people then refused to step forward and the warriors refused to battle Goliath for the same reasons. Fear of an adversary and a lack of faith in God. Something or someone had to change that pattern. At his father's direction, the shepherd David came to the battlefront to bring lunch to his brothers and some nice snacks for their commanding officer. But when David saw and heard Goliath, he heard the challenge differently than the soldiers of Israel. It was less about fighting abilities or strategies and more about faith in God. David asked, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He volunteered to fight the duel. When that became known in the camp, his own brothers mocked him. King Saul doubted him and tried to give David his armor to wear. Brave king, that one. But it didn't fit properly. (laughs) When the time for the duel came, Goliath ridiculed David for his youthful appearance. But David didn't see the size of the giant. He was consumed with the size of his God. David advanced toward Goliath armed with his slingshot and five stones, not pebbles, for ammunition in his bag. Here's what he said. You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. One stone flung from David's shepherd's slingshot felled the giant. While both armies must have watched in stunned silence, David then cut off Goliath's head with the giant's own sword. Israel chased and then routed the Philistine army that day. David's victory is a type of Christ, a foreshadowing that points ahead to the one who would come to battle an even greater enemy that none of us could defeat. Jesus came as our champion in the power of God to fight the ultimate giant of sin and death. By the cross and resurrection, he fought and won the battle in our place so we could go free and had the spoils of the victory. After this event, David entered Saul's service as his armor bearer, part of the inner circle or cabinet of the king. He developed a deep friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. But David's defeat of Goliath had also come to wide public attention and the acclaim of the people of Israel for David stirred bitter jealousy in Saul. From this point on, though David was faithful to Saul and often soothed his debilitating seasons of depression with songs, Saul pursued David with the intent to kill him. David lived constantly on the run from Saul, hiding in caves and one time even feigning insanity to seek refuge with a Philistine king. David was a man of deep integrity and respect for the anointed leader of Israel, so though he had several opportunities to kill Saul, he refused to do so. Still, through this difficult time, many people rallied to David as their leader. After Saul and Jonathan died in a battle with the Philistines, David truly grieved. He then became king, first over his family tribe of Judah, and after some additional infighting with Saul's descendants over all Israel. He led Israel to victories over the Philistines and brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem with great rejoicing and even publicly dancing for joy. After David had become king over all Israel, the nation was at peace. David determined to build a permanent temple for the worship of God. The Ark had first been housed in the tabernacle when Israel left Egypt. In recent decades, it had been kept in a private home near the Philistine border. And even though it was now in Jerusalem, it was still housed in a tent. A permanent home of a temple seemed like a good idea from a devoted heart. But through the prophet Nathan, God denied the request and instead entered a covenant with David. In the Davidic covenant, 
is God's promise that an eternal king would come from David's royal line of descendants. Here's what the prophet told him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I will make for you a great name. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and your house and our kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is clearly a messianic prophecy of Jesus Christ who would come out of the tribe of Judah and line of David to take the throne and reign forever. David would have a royal and eternal legacy. Victories continued to come for Israel, and peace was enjoyed by the people until David's adultery with Bathsheba, the cover-up, and the consequences. It seemed that as David grew older, the sustained peace and long record of military success lulled him into a false sense of security. One spring, he did not even go out for battle campaigns with his men. Alone in the palace, he took a walk on the rooftop and saw a woman bathing, which was a normal practice and not an act of seduction. He used his power as king to summon her to the palace, even after he was informed that she was the wife of Uriah, one of his elite inner circle of warriors. David and Bathsheba engaged in sexual intercourse, and in a few weeks she informed him that she was pregnant. In an attempt to cover up his adultery, David made a series of tragic and sinful choices. First, he called Uriah from the battlefield and attempted to entice him to spend time with his wife in the hope that the pregnancy would appear to be the result of this special eve. He even got Uriah drunk to remove his inhibitions. But Uriah was a man of deep-rooted integrity and slept at the palace gate rather than enjoy his wife while the men under his command were on duty away from their wives and families. When that plan failed, David arranged for the murder of Uriah to look like a battlefield accident. After the appropriate time of grieving, David married the widow Bathsheba, and not long afterwards, their baby was born. It looked like they were in the clear. Scripture says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. He sent his prophet Nathan to confront David by telling a compelling parable of injustice about a wealthy man with many flocks of sheep who stole his poor neighbor's pet lamb for a meal with friends. That caused David to angrily declare a harsh sentence on the man, to which Nathan replied, You are the man. The Lord asked David, after all his kindnesses to him, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? If you're keeping count, David broke at least six of the Ten Commandments with this action. So, David confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. We have a fuller insight into David's heart with the prayer that we know as Psalm 51. Though he repented and was forgiven by God, the consequences of that sin rippled out for generations in David's family. The death of the baby, the rape of a daughter by one of his sons, family infighting, the murder of one son and estrangement of the one who killed him, Absalom, which led to a rebellion that nearly cost David his kingdom. But still, God's grace sustained David to lead faithfully to the end. After leading Israel for 40 years, King David died. Solomon, Israel's third king, was gifted by God with unmatched wisdom and astonishing wealth and led Israel in a long period of peaceful growth only to pursue idolatry that turned his heart from God at the end of his life. 
Solomon was the son born to David and Bathsheba after the child of their adultery died. Though there was some confusion at the time of David's death, Solomon was anointed as David's successor. He loved the Lord and wanted to be faithful. So when God asked in a dream what he needed as king, the overwhelmed Solomon humbly prayed for godly wisdom to rule. This so pleased the Lord that he granted Solomon extraordinary wisdom and understanding in many fields of study as well as incomparable riches and worldly honor. Solomon led Israel to years of prosperity, peace, and expansion. People came from all over the known world to hear Solomon's wisdom, to marvel at his wealth, and to see what he had built, which included the glories of his palace and the temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. The construction of the magnificent temple for the Lord in Jerusalem, which fulfilled part of the Lord's promise to his father David. Though he was not to build the temple, David gathered for Solomon the supplies necessary, iron, bronze, cedar timbers, to build a structure, as he said, exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. Once Solomon directed construction to begin, it took seven years to build the temple. He drafted almost 200,000 men into forced labor as carpenters, woodcutters, stonecutters, stonemasons, and burden bearers to complete it. Three stories tall, the exterior of the temple was a gleaming white stone, and the interior had cedar-lined walls overlaid with gold, there were olive wood carvings, and bronze cast furnishings for the work of the priests. All Israel gathered when the Ark of the Covenant was brought in, and the glory of God filled the temple with His presence as it had with the tabernacle all those years before. Solomon prayed passionately that the Lord would respond when his people prayed there. This temple was the center of Israel's worship until its destruction by the Babylonians. The peace of Solomon, along with economic and territorial expansion of Israel, continued for years. But as a result of trees with pagan rulers that were sealed with marriages and his own lack of discipline, Solomon gathered 700 wives who were designated princesses, and 300 concubines. Unfortunately, just as the Lord had twice warned him, his wives turned away his heart after other gods as he steadily added the worship of his wives' foreign idols to his worship of Yahweh so that his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. This sin caused the Lord to raise adversaries against Solomon in his later years externally by military action from nations outside Israel, and internally by rising opposition to his rule. A prophet named Ahijah brought word from the Lord that Solomon would lose most of his kingdom to Jeroboam, the head administrator over forced labor in Israel. So Solomon reigned 40 years in Israel and then died.